Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20, plus you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. With its location along Lake Erie, the future county of Norfolk was a popular place for the indigenous. Due to the location along the shores of the lake and the abundance of flora, fauna, and fish, many indigenous groups would occupy the territory over the centuries. These groups included the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Neutral, and the Mississauga. Many artifacts have been found in the area, including arrowheads that are still found in field areas around the county. Due to its location, the county was one of the earliest places reached by explorers as they journeyed inland through North America. In 1626, Laurier de and two other Frenchmen arrived in the area and spent three months with the neutral indigenous nation, and another two Jesuits would arrive in the area in 1640. On July 6, 1669, the French explorers de Gallienet and Dolier de Cassin reached the area of what is now Port Dover. They would explore throughout the area and set up a winter camp near current Port Dover. Deciding that the land was perfect for settlement thanks to the aesthetic appeal and abundant food, they decided on March 23, 1670 to erect a cross to claim sovereignty for King Louis XIV over the entire region. The site where the cross was put into the ground would become a national historic site in 1920. While explorers were coming through, there was no settlement until over a century later, William Smith came to the area and he settled where Port Rowan is today in 1793. This would be the first community in the area and it was called Long Point Settlement. Mills in the area would be built by United Empire Loyalist settlers who left the United States after the Revolutionary War. Norfolk County itself would be created as a constituency for the Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada in July 1792. Six years later, the county was reduced in size. One year after the county was formed, Cartwright's Landing was established. Named for John Cartwright, who had settled in the area, the village would suffer during the War of 1812 when Americans burned all the mills along the North Shore. The community would rebound and in 1819, its name would change from Cartwright's Landing to Port Rowan in honour of Colonel Rowan, the secretary to the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada.
1794, Waterford was founded as a saw and grist mill location. The first successful grist mill would be operated by Paul Averill, and due to its abundance of mills, the community originally went through several names, including sales mills and sovereigns mills. It was not until 1826 when the first post office opened and the name of Waterford was chosen. James Graves Simcoe would establish a settlement divided into two areas named Birdtown and Queensway. Birdtown was named for William Bird. In 1795, Simcoe gave land to Aaron Culver on the agreement that he would build mills to help the economy of the area. By 1812, a small hamlet had formed, but it would be burned down by the Americans in 1814. Rebuilding would begin and Culver would lay out a new village between 1819 and 1823. A post office was built in 1829 and at that point, the community was officially named Simcoe. The community quickly began to grow and became one of the most prominent communities in the county and the largest community. In 1850, it would become the county seat of Norfolk and by 1869, it had a population of 2,100 people. In 1798, the Back House Mill was built in the county, and unlike many other mills that would be burned to the ground during the War of 1812, this one continues to survive. In fact, it would operate until 1957. Due to the fact that it is one of the few surviving grist mills from the 18th century in all of Ontario, it was made a National Historic Site of Canada in 1998. The Bacchus Mill Conservation Education Centre has been established at the mill to educate visitors on the natural history and traditions of waterfowl hunting. It is also an open-air heritage village that includes restored and reconstructed buildings and structures. Some of the buildings include a carriage shop, a barn with antique agricultural equipment, a drive shed with buggies and wagons, two log houses, a sawmill, and a schoolhouse. Within the museum itself, there are several displays that highlight the history of the area, as well as the shipwrecks of Lake Erie. In the early 1800s, Daniel McQueen would settle in the area and created the village of Dover Mills. While McQueen created the village, the unofficial founder is Peter Walker, who was the first settler to the area in 1794. The village would be attacked by the Americans during the War of 1812 and would be burned to the ground. After the war, it was rebuilt and its name would change from Dover Mills, named for Dover, England, to Port Dover. In 1835, Port Dover would be incorporated as a village. To learn more about the history of Port Dover, a great place to visit is the Port Dover Harbour Museum. The exhibits are always changing, but some of the permanent exhibits include the tugboats that worked through the years at Port Dover, as well as the importance of the beach to the cultural aspect of the community. There's also the history of the beautiful greenhouses that have been part of Port Dover for over a century, and there's an exhibit honouring the sinking of the Atlantic in 1852. The sinking of the ship resulted in the largest loss of life in the history of Lake Erie, and many artifacts from the wreck are now found in the museum. The main gallery explores the marine history of Port Dover, as well as the overall history of the community. Around 1812, Frederick Sovereign settled in the area of Delhi after immigrating to Canada following the American Revolution. Another settler, Joseph Lawson, bought land in the area but did not build a home for several years. A village would spring up and was named Fredericksburg in honour of Sovereign. The name would remain until the post office was opened and the community was named Delhi. Sovereign was an important member of the community for decades. For over 30 years, he was the tavern keeper, and he would also grow tobacco, cure the leaves, and press them to make plug tobacco. When he passed away, he donated his land to the Baptist Church, where he had served as the deacon for decades. The War of 1812 was one of the most transformative events in the history of Canada, 
and it would eventually lead to Confederation itself. Due to its location, Norfolk County was an important location during the war as the Americans invaded in the hopes of expanding their territory. In an effort to reinforce the area, Fort Norfolk was built. This was a small fort consisting of walls and a single blockhouse structure that was built by the 37th Regiment of Foot during the winter of 1814-15. The blockhouse served as a living quarters for several hundred soldiers, and there was a plan to build a larger fort that included a shipbuilding facility, but this did not happen. After the war was over, the importance of the fort began to diminish, and it was abandoned. All that remains of the site is a memorial cairn erected in 1922. Three years later, the site was made a National Historic Site of Canada. On November 13, 1813, the Battle, or Skirmish, of Nanticoke Creek would occur. An expedition of Norfolk County Militia had been sent out to capture some American marauders who were active in the area and causing problems for residents and the soldiers stationed there. A decision was made to attack the cabin of John Dunham, where there is now an Ontario Hydro Generating Station. This was not an official military action, but more of a vigilante action organized by a group of men who had met in the home of William Drake in Dover. The men arrived at the cabin and encircled it, while another group went into the woods to block any escape. As the first group approached, the cabin seemed as if it was deserted. A Lieutenant Austin then kicked in the door of the cabin and found a crowd of men staring at him. The Americans quickly grabbed their guns, but as they did, they were told by Colonel Henry Bostwick that they were surrounded. Most of the men decided not to fight, but as Bostwick waited for the men in the trees to arrive at the cabin, the Americans decided to fight. At this point, the second group arrived and met with the first group around the cabin. Gunfire was heard in the cabin, and the Canadians fired at the cabin immediately. Only one Canadian, Benjamin Chandler, was killed. Bostwick would say of him, quote, He was the support of an aged mother and blind father. He was a spirited and brave young man, and his death was much regretted, end quote. Among the Americans, three were killed and 18 were taken prisoner. Bostwick would write, quote, Too much praise cannot be given to the militia who composed our party for their steady perseverance, coolness, and courage. Many of them had been out the whole night before, and notwithstanding the very fatiguing march through the woods and swamps, not a word of complaint was heard, end quote. In 1850, a home was built in Simcoe for Duncan Campbell, who was a banker and the first postmaster for Simcoe. He would retire around the same time that the building was finished, which covered 10 acres of land, including the landscaped grounds. And while the estate was broken up in 1911 so the land could be developed into the growing community, the house would remain, and still does to this day. Today, the house is a National Historic Site of Canada, and the Linwood Arts Centre is located there. In 1855, George Teeter purchased land in Norfolk County, and he laid out the village of Teeterville four years later. By 1870, the village had two churches, a school, town hall, two general stores, two shoe shops, three carriage shops, three blacksmiths, two doctors, and three hotels. The major industry in the community was Teeter's Mill, which employed 25 people who worked the sawmill, shingle mill, and grist mill. With Port Dover serving as an important center for shipbuilding and the fishing industry, there was a lot of boat traffic coming through the area. All that traffic meant that boats had to be kept safe in adverse conditions. To accommodate that, the Port Dover Lighthouse would be built in 1850, replacing a smaller lighthouse that had been built at the same spot in 1846, but had been destroyed by fire. The Port Dover Lighthouse was built in the typical economic fashion of a square tapered wooden lighthouse using materials from the nearby mills and forests using local labour. Today, the Port Dover Lighthouse continues to stand and is the dominant structure at the pier as well as a symbol of the maritime character of Port Dover.
Due to its importance in the maritime history of the area, it was designated as a heritage lighthouse in 2014. On September 15, 1897, a terrible fire would sweep through Teeterville. The fire began early in the morning, and by the time it had burned through, 14 buildings were destroyed, including a general store, two hotels, a cabinet shop, and several homes. Citizens attempted to fight the fire with a bucket brigade, but before long the wells of the town had dried up, and unfortunately most of the damages from the fire were not covered by insurance. In 1908, the St. Williams Forestry Station was established. This was the first reforestation project to ever happen in Canada. On over 100 acres of sandy land, the Ontario government began working to replant forests under the guidance of Edmund John Zavitz. Through his leadership, a huge area of what was wasteland was restored to productivity. Today, that history is celebrated as Canada's first forestry station interpretive centre, which educates the public on the reforestation and conservation of land in Norfolk County. On June 17, 1925, the Norfolk Carillon Tower was built to honour the men as well as one woman who died during the First World War. This memorial, easily one of the biggest in Canada, was built through funds raised by the Norfolk County citizens and the site itself was donated by the Simcoe High School. It stands at 60 feet high and 20 feet square, made completely of stone in the Norman architectural style. The limestone was quarried nearby, and inside the tower features 23 bells, including the largest bell that weighs over 1,500 pounds. The smallest bell is only 60 pounds, and the tower is considered to be one of the best in the world for its style. Every hour the bells ring, and they've become a feature of the community. Around the base of the tower, there are five memorial plaques. The plaque on the left of the door lists the names of the 217 soldiers from the Norfolk County who gave their lives during the First World War, as well as one nursing sister. The right side of the door has a plaque honoring the 141 Norfolk County soldiers who gave their lives during the Second World War. A plaque on the north wall honors the 133rd Norfolk County Battalion, while a fourth plaque honors Petty Officer 2nd Class Douglas Craig Blake, who died during the Afghanistan War on July 3, 2010. The east-facing wall has a plaque with the names of 12 soldiers who were students at the high school prior to enlisting in the First World War. The tower is one of only 10 that still remain in Canada that is manually operated with others including the Peace Tower in Ottawa. It is also the second carillon ever installed in Canada after the Metropolitan United Church carillon in Toronto. On July 9, 1927, a man named Leonard Patrick Kelly was born in Simcoe. He would gain the nickname of Red due to his red hair and he would go on to become one of the greatest NHL players in history. After attending school at Port Dover and growing up listening to Foster Hewitt call the Toronto Maple Leaf games, Kelly dreamed of becoming an NHL player. He would achieve that, debuting with the Detroit Red Wings in 1947 on his way to a legendary career. From 1947 to 1967, he would play in 1,316 games, recording 823 points along the way. He would have his name engraved on the Stanley Cup eight times, four with Detroit in 1950, 1952, 1954, and 1955, and four times with Toronto in 1962, 1964, and 1967. He is the only player to win eight Stanley Cups and never play for the Montreal Canadiens. He would also win the Lady Bing Trophy in 1951, 1953, and 1954, and the James Norris Memorial Trophy in 1954. Even more amazing is that during his NHL career, he also served as a Liberal Member of Parliament from 1962 to 1965. Inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1969, 
He will be named one of the 100 greatest NHL players in history in 2017. You know, Mr. Kelly, one of the most interesting things about you is that at the same time as you were a, a pro NHLer and, you know, a Stanley Cup winner, you were also a member of Parliament, a federal liberal member of Parliament. How did you manage those two worlds? It was very tough. <laughs> we went through two elections, uh, served as the opposition and then served as the government. Uh, we defeated Diefenbaker after being in a year. Uh, and I'm, uh, Lester Pearson was our leader and, and became the prime minister. And uh, I, I, uh, you couldn't do it today, but uh, in those days uh, we had six teams. Uh, we played our games Saturday night, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights. Uh, only occasionally would we play a, a game Thursday, and that hap that would be in Montreal against Montreal. And uh, the house would convene at 2 p.m. on Monday and uh, and go from 2 to 6 and then from 8 to 10 and then the next uh, Tuesday the same thing and then Wednesday it would close at 6 and, and Thursday and, and Friday were the same thing except it closed again at 6 on Friday mm -hmm. so I was able to make all those games as a result but uh, I would practice by myself a lot of times and uh, but uh, uh, and it was tough the traveling and everything I only had problems the Getting to the Montreal game, we had the minority government, we had all kinds of votes, and we were playing that night in Montreal, and and the bells were ringing, and the last vote didn't take place till 6 p.m., and uh, the deputy speaker had his chauffeur waiting at the at the door for me, and uh, I ran out and got in the car, and they took me to the airport, and uh, there was a plane waiting, and got me to Montreal, and I had a limousine waiting there, drove me right to the Montreal Forum. Players were just going on the ice as I ran in, and for warm-up and I got dressed just in time to start the game. Then the worst part was after the game, I had to go back to Ottawa, so I was taking the train back and the FLQ were active in those days and they threatened to blow up the trestles. And so uh, they wouldn't let the train go through. I should have been back in Ottawa at, at one o'clock and uh, because they wouldn't allow the train, I got to sit there on the train and I didn't get in until about 6.30 in the morning and I was rooming with Eugene Whalen and Larry Pinnell <laughs> and they they were just getting up to go to, to go over to the Parliament House, uh, House of Commons and I was just coming in. One of the most unique museums in Canada has to be the Delhi Tobacco Museum. It is a common misconception to think that Canada did not grow tobacco and that was something only grown in the southern United States. In truth, tobacco was an important part of the economy of the area of Norfolk County. That history is celebrated at the Delhi Tobacco Museum. Built in 1979 as a model of a typical tobacco pack barn, the museum houses a collection of agricultural artifacts that look at the growing of tobacco, ginseng, and other agricultural products in the community. Another great museum to check out is the Waterford Heritage and Agricultural Museum. The museum contains several exhibits and artifacts that show the history of Norfolk County, from the soldiers who fought in the World Wars, to the indigenous, to local settlers, and much more. The museum also features the Norfolk County Agricultural Hall of Fame, which honors the achievements of local farmers and producers to the rural development of the county. In 2018, the Ava Brooke Donnelly Museum and Archives was transferred to Norfolk County with the intention of establishing the Norfolk County Archives. Since 2018, several areas of the building have been converted to archival storage spaces to accommodate the new archival records that have been transferred from the county. In 2020, Norfolk County Archives was officially established under a bylaw as the official municipal archives for the county. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Norfolk County. If you did, please leave a rating and review. 
If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.